Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all here tonight. And if it gets too hot, just open those doors at the back, you know, because it's cosy where I'm standing. Let's put it that way. Uh, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 40. I'd hope to finish Job tonight, but uh, I'm afraid we're not going to quite manage that. I'll probably have a little bit more to do the next time we, we come together. But it's Job chapter 40. And we read, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify myself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins. What power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His lips like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God. Yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The animals bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus leaf he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their shadow. The poplars by the tree surround him, streams surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you? for you to take him as your slave for life. Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or lay his, his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing, subduing him is false. 
The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who is a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Just going to come and pray. Let's just pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us understanding of it, of what it means. And also you'll give us the ability to apply it to our lives in terms of what it should mean in our lives day by day. Father, be with us and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a story with you to start off. A couple from Minneapolis were suffering the effects of a particularly cold winter, so they decided to go to Florida for a weekend to thaw out. Because they were both very busy, they found it impossible to coordinate their travel. It was decided then that the husband would fly to Florida on the Thursday and that his wife would travel down the next day. On arrival, he decided to get his laptop going and he sent a brief email back to his wife in Minneapolis. However, he accidentally left off one letter in her email address and he sent his message without realizing his error. In Houston, at the same time, a widow had just returned from her husband's funeral. He'd been a pastor for many years had lived a long and fruitful life being called to glory. Looking to see if there had been any messages from friends or family, the lady sat down to check her email. She opened the first message, fainted, and fell straight to the ground. Her son rushed into the room, found his mother unconscious, then glanced at the computer screen, which read, To my loving wife. From your departed husband. Subject, I have arrived. Message, I have just arrived and been checked in. Everything went very smoothly after my departure. I also verified that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is uneventful as mine. And then the P.S. It sure is hot down here. (laughs) That's thankfully, I believe, not a true story. But what it illustrates, for me at least, is something that I've kind of sought to keep to the forefront of my mind during my preparation for this series on Job. And that is the importance of good, clear, accurate communication, especially at crisis times in the key areas of life. Well, I've tried to to make sure that I've communicated clearly what I believe to be the central truths of this book of Job, a book that speaks with unparalleled authority into probably the key crisis area of life, our suffering. And I really do hope and pray that I've been successful in this. But now we're heading towards the finishing line with Job. And as I I shared with you the last time we were together, the scene that confronts us in these final chapters of Job, it's almost like the closing scene in one of those great classic courtroom dramas. 
the witnesses, the so-called experts, Job's friends, have all had their say. Now it's time for the closing speeches. It's time for the two main characters, Job and the Lord God himself. It's time for them to have their say. Now it's time for judgment to be reached. Now this week, what we're going to do is we're going to focus more, not exclusively, but more on God, on what he has to say, on his viewpoint. Next time, we're going to finish this by looking more at Job, all that he's gone through, and above all, at the lessons we can take from Job that will enable us to stand as he stood when crisis comes our way. But let's start first tonight with a reminder for us. A reminder, that is, just a very brief overview of the the events and the accompanying arguments that that have actually brought us to where we, we find ourselves tonight. So Job then, a man of of great wealth and power, a man with the ideal family, and above all, a godly and a holy man, a man of true spiritual integrity. Job was brought to his knees by a series of tragedies, a series of disasters. Health, wealth, family, everything has been taken from him. Now the reason for this, unbeknown to him, was that God's high opinion of Job Seen in Job 1 verse 8, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That this led Satan to say, jealously, basically, knows what Lord, he said. No, God. This is what's going on with Job. This isn't about a faith-love thing. Job living like this isn't about him doing this because he loves you and because he just trusts you just so much. Rather, God, it's because of the way you're blessing him. It's because of the way you're protecting him. Job's living this life of faith because of what he can get out of it here and now, because of the physical, material blessing it brings to him. But take them away, God, and see how long it is before Job turns his back on you. And that, of course is the test that Job then goes through. Everything is taken from him. And though Job feels the pain of this, yet ultimately his faith is actually proven to be of gold, of pure gold. A big part of Job's testing, though, came in the form of three seemingly spiritual friends who came to him whose twisted thinking, twisted advice actually became Satan's greatest weapon against Job. Because, you see, they didn't know what we know. That is, that there was no sin whatsoever in Job's life that had led to, that had in any way justified the suffering he was enduring. These men, they didn't know this. And so what they then did was they took biblical principles, principles that can be true, principles that are true in certain circumstances, and they tried to make them into absolutes that are always true. So you see, what they said is, Job, this suffering is because of sin in your life. It must be. And God, through this, he's disciplining you to bring you to repentance and so to bring you back to him. Now, of course, 
this can be true. This is something that the Bible teaches that's probably most clearly expressed in, in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, teaching that's then repeated in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. You know, my Lord, my son, sorry, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And Job's friends, in, in various ways, and, and with increasing brutality, as we've seen, they, they just hurled this teaching at him again and again. But the facts are, the biblical facts, that though this teaching, as we've said, can be true, that it is far from always being applicable. Now, because what the Bible also tells us is that it was man's sin in general. The sin of all mankind and mankind's choice to sin, mankind's choice to rebel against God, to turn his back on God and God's ways and God's love. It was this that introduced suffering and sickness and death into our world. And that as long as we live in this sinful world, we will, as men and women, every single one of us, suffer some of the impact that man's sin in general has brought into the world. So you see, while there are times when we can maybe trace someone's suffering back to a particular decision to sin, yet far more often, suffering is rooted in the general impact of sin on our world. So why do certain people suffer why do certain people go through what they do? Why do certain things happen? You know, more often than not, we just cannot understand it. We just cannot take it in, and we certainly cannot explain things away because we haven't got the insight, we haven't got the resources and understanding to begin to be able to do this. We cannot explain away people's suffering. And you know what? In, in the vast majority of cases, people who are suffering don't want us to. They don't expect us to. They don't. They know our limitations and they don't want any simplistic part answers from us. Rather, what they actually want is they want a friend to get down and get alongside them. They want friends who are ready to stand by them and care for them. And love them. And if only Job's friends had realized this, well, that would have been very different. And that's a reminder for us. What we find now, though, in the closing chapters of Job is a reminder for Job, a reminder here for Job from the Lord. And this really, with a very brief comment from Job in, in the middle of this, this, this is what really runs from Job chapter 38 to the end of Job. 41. And you know what's very interesting here as you look at this is actually what God doesn't say. What God doesn't say. Because notice, God doesn't give Job any answers. He doesn't give him any reason as to why he suffered. He doesn't tell Job anything about that conversation that he had with Satan in the opening chapter of this book. He doesn't. So what does God say? What is God saying in these chapters? Well, it's really a, a, a setting forth, I, I believe, of his creation, isn't it? It's just God telling us of the glory and wonder of his creation. 
then we ask, well, why? Why this? I mean, Job's sitting listening to this from God, having lost everything. He's on his knees. He's got nothing. He's covered in boils and sores. So isn't it irrelevant, not to say insensitive, that God's response to this man in this position should be to say, basically, look at the wonderful, glorious, complex, beautiful world that I have made. You know, this could almost be seen by us as us responding to somebody's tale of tragedy with a comment something along the lines of after having heard their woes, just say, well, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Nice day. But it's not that, you see. It's not that. It's not that because of who said it. You see, sometimes we think we know, but God does know. We sometimes think that we are powerful and in control, but he is all-powerful and always in control. God is not unfeeling to Job here. He's not ignoring or belittling in his plight. Now, what he's trying to do is he's trying to teach Job some very, very important lessons. So as he scopes out, traces out here the, the scope of this world, the heavens, the earth, and the seas, as he speaks of its variety, the almost innumerable living creatures of heaven and earth and sea, as he speaks of its complexity and its interrelatedness, each dependent on the other, each contributing in some way something unique. Well, surely at least part of, of what God is, is trying to say to Job here is, is open your eyes, Job. Open your eyes. Look around you at this amazing world I've given you. Could life ever be simple on a world such as this? Could you, a mere man, ever hope to understand how this world operates and why certain things happen? A strong recurring theme, though, in these chapters that, that speaks so powerfully and eloquently of God's creation, a strong theme is that of power. Power. For example, 38 Verse 8, who shut the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? Verse 18, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and peace? What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it? But probably, I think, the most entertaining illustration of, of God's power here is the description in chapter 40 of first the behemoth thought by most to be the hippopotamus, and that kind of fits. And also the Leviathan. And, and, and there's some dispute about just what, what creatures actually meant there, but most of the experts seem to go with the crocodile, and, and I'll just side with them. And again, look at it and read it and you'll see. But, but the idea here is that these are creatures of incredible power. Creatures not to be played around with, not to be trifled with. 
by any sensible person. What it says in in verse 4 of chapter 41 of the crocodile, will he make an agreement with you for, for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? You know, this is a, a kind of semi-comic device and it's just designed by its ridiculousness to emphasize the power of this creature. Who could ever imagine a crocodile as a pet sitting on a perch? Who could imagine a crocodile being led along on a leash by a little girl? It is, it's ridiculous. Now, this is a creature of incredible power. And yet, these creatures were made by God. And their power is as nothing in the light of his power. Now, some might have wanted to argue, though, that that this illustration's punchline has been, was at least lost or diluted in the light a number of years ago of the Australian Steve Irwin named the Crocodile Man. You know, the first time I saw that guy, Steve Irwin, on TV, I actually was reduced to shouting at the television set because there he was sitting what seemed to be feet away from a crocodile's jaws, gazing with wonder at it. And just telling us all how monstrously powerful it is. He told us all that and then he lassoed them. I couldn't believe it. Talking away to them like he talked to a wee dog. Seeming almost to tickle their tummy. And then he let them go. Soothingly chatting away to the crocodile. While its jaws seemed to be just about getting him time after time. Now amazingly. He found a wife, an American lady, Terry, who had just the same attitude. And one infamous incident involved him holding his one-month-old son, Robert, in one arm, while with the other hand, hand-feeding a chicken to Murray, a 12-foot six-inch leaping saltwater crocodile. Now, there was a bit of a furore here. later apologised and said that he was experienced and he was always in control of the situation. But nevertheless, the law of Queensland was changed to never allow this to happen again. So what I said earlier about crocodiles being creatures of incredible power, not to be played about with for any, by any sensible person, what I said there, I think that is the opt-out for Steve Irwin. Because unique and gifted and entertaining person that he was, I don't think he would fit within many people's definition of sensible. Indeed, I actually read that a friend of his once said of him that he's a chapati shot of an Indian meal. And ironically, after all of his crocodile adventures, he was killed by a barb from a short tail stingray, pierced his heart. But powerful though, as the crocodile and the hippopotamus are. Yet the inference again is that they were made by God and that their power is as nothing in the light of his power, of God's power. So you see what God's saying to Job here? Surely at least he's saying, remember who you are, Job. Remember your limitations. And Job, remember who I am. 
Remember that I'm your God. Remember that I'm the God of might and power and glory. And so you'll never be able to ever understand fully all that I'm doing. You never will. But Job, you can trust in me. You know my power. You see the signs of my power all around you. And you've experienced my love and my faithfulness in your life. So in what you're suffering, in your trial, hold on to me, John. Keep on holding on. Keep on trusting in me. Job, remember, I'm the creator. You're the creature. Remember that you're mine, and though you cannot now see it, trust that I am doing my work in you. Well, I want to finish here tonight just by looking briefly, just for a few minutes, at the result. That is what God's looking for out of all of this. And the first thing that we find here in terms of result is repentance. After all we've said, for Job does repent. In chapter 42, verse 5 and 6, he says there, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I think it's interesting that as Job repents there, at that point, nothing has yet changed for him. His circumstances are still exactly the same at that point. He's still a sick, poor, lonely man. So this isn't a superficial response to the blessing of God. This is a statement of a deep work of God in the very heart of a broken man. But what's Job repenting of? What is he repenting of? He's obviously not repenting of some sin that's caused his suffering, that led to his suffering, we know that because we know we've established that Job's sufferings were not a punishment for sin. I believe the answer here is to be found in the first words that the Lord speaks to Job. Chapter 38. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. What, what's been said here then? Well, there's obviously a suggestion of ignorance. That as Job had spoken, had struggled as he had, that he'd done this because of a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. But the Lord then went on to supply. But I believe there's something more than ignorance that's being hinted at here. I believe that Job, remarkable man though he undoubtedly was, was not a perfect man. And just what Job's sin had actually been during this trial, because that's where it's located, is I think found in verse 3, where God says, I will question you now, Job, and you will answer me. You see, Job, God wants his people to be real, to be open and honest. We've established that through this series. He wants his people to cry out to him. But Job, it would seem, from what's said here, although at times he'd reached glorious spiritual high points, yet it would seem he'd also gone a little too far at times. He'd been a little 
too bold in his questions of God, in his challenges to God, in his putting God almost in the dock. And it's this, this slight arrogance, this misdirected anger, it's this that Job is convicted of and repents of here. Isn't it wonderful, though, I think, to know and to see as later events prove that Job is, as he repents, completely forgiven. Isn't it wonderful to know? It is wonderful. Because as we as lesser men and women than Job, as we go through our trials, whatever they are, and as we maybe complain that little bit louder even than Job, as we perhaps doubt that little bit more, trust that little bit less than him, well, isn't it wonderful that we too know that as we turn to God in repentance, that we will be given to Another result that emerges from this experience of Job that I, I know brought God delight was depth. The increase in Job's spiritual depth. His growth, his increased maturity as a man of, of God. For Job, in the furnace of his suffering, you see, he'd learn more about himself and more about really matters in life and above all, more about God. Before this happened, Job had been a great man. He'd been an exemplary man. He'd been a supremely godly man. But as here, his faith had been tried and tested as no other man's ever had. So that faith had grown in depth. And you know, there are very few things that I would ever want to give a 100% guarantee on. But I will say this. I will say this. That I have never met a Christian who has gone through an experience of deep suffering and who has turned to God in it. And that's what matters. I've never known a Christian who has not grown wonderfully spiritually as a result of that. Not one. Never known one. And this has not been the end because at the end of it all I've never known one who's not then said that this has been one of the most precious experiences of their life when God was so close so near. I've met people like this a number of them have had the privilege of getting alongside a number of people going through this kind of experience and I tell you as you meet them the sense of the presence of God is so real and so powerful. Now, that's not to say that these people are eager to go through the same again because they're frail and because it was so painful. But I tell you, God does do wonderful things in his people as they turn to him in their suffering. The final result that God drew from Job's suffering as an example. Now, at the time, Job didn't know it. When he went through it all, as far as Job was concerned, he was just one of God's people going through the mill. And I'm sure if you'd asked Job, he would probably have felt they hadn't done all that well. They had complained a little bit too much. They had cried out a little too loudly. But what we know is the fact that Job was real and that he held on to God means that he has been an example to God's people 
right down through the ages, that he has had his story included in the word of God. And you know, I've known a number of people during my time here in Hamlin who've had the same kind of impact as I've looked at their lives. The way that they've suffered has spoken to me of the glory and the power of God. They've been an example. There are people who are being an example right now. And I pray that maybe to a lesser, but to a no less real extent, that if suffering at some point in life comes our way, as it may well do, that we too might be an example and inspiration to the people of God. That by the way we respond, by the way we hold on in faith and trust, that we might be an example. And above all, that we might bring joy to the heart of God. Let's come and pray. Father, we want to thank you again for Job. We thank you for all we learn from his life, for all we see in him, of what your grace can do in the life of a man or a woman put through the most incredible suffering. He never fully understood it, and we never can. We can't understand sometimes why the things that happen in this sinful world do happen. We can't understand why some people suffer in the way that they do. But Lord, what we know is we know who you are. We know that you're loving. We know that you're powerful. And we know that you're at work in us. And we know that you want to make us more like Jesus. Lord, help us to turn to you. Help us to hold on to you in faith and trust. Whatever life brings our way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.